Hello, and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI president Robert Dorr, we'll be your Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us on Banter this morning is Ambassador Paul Wolfowitz, who's a visiting scholar with us at AEI, where he works on development and national security issues. Before joining us at AEI, Ambassador Wolfowitz spent more than three decades in public service and higher education, working in the administration of seven different presidents. He served as the 10th president of the World Bank, U.S. Deputy Secretary of State, U.S. Ambassador to Indonesia, and the former dean of Johns Hopkins SICE. Thanks so much for joining Banter. Paul, it's great to have you. Phoebe, you said U.S. Secretary Secretary of State is Secretary of Defense, is I think what you meant. Yes, I want exactly. to say. So <laughs> I was going to correct that, but I was being too polite. <laughs> Off yeah, to a well, strong start. I, I, you know, I'm the. I've got to make sure we get. The State Department folks are always polite. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that's right. So I'm very happy about having Paul on because there's no one at AI that's had a more distinguished career and has faced difficult, more difficult challenges and has had more responsibility in facing those challenges than Paul. And on top of that, and for someone with that great distinguished career, he's also one of the nicest people around the building. And when I came seven years ago, he was one of my first friends, and he's great to not just me, but to the RAs and the staff, and he's a great colleague. So, Paul, thank you very much for doing this. I wanted to start out today bringing up someone who you've brought to my attention, who's making a name for himself in the defense and foreign policy strategy thinking world, and that is Bridge Colby. He has written lately in sort of thinking about our defense and foreign policy priorities, we need to focus on only one thing, and the one thing is China. And that a lot of the other issues that we face around the world are less important and need to be, maybe I'm characterizing it wrong, made less of a priority. Do you agree with that? And, and what's your view of, of that sort of perspective? I largely agree with it, but I guess I would also say it's too one-dimensional. And that too often, and I think Bridge Colby is an example of this, the tendency is to focus on China in its region instead of recognizing that China is emerging as a huge challenge globally. And I think most importantly, a failure to recognize that walking out of Afghanistan, which we're about to do apparently, or abandoning Iraq as President Obama did in 2011, and I hope we're not, and I, Trump seems on the way to doing that also. I understand the unhappiness with endless wars, but China is a global competitor. And something like the Persian Gulf, where they get, I think, 50% of their energy from, is not something you can ignore while saying that China is the problem. So you brought up the Middle East. And so let's just ask about Iraq, for instance. It's not, Afghanistan is in the headlines today for sure. This is the day after President Biden announced that he was going to withdraw. United States troops from Afghanistan by September 11th of this year. And we'll get to Afghanistan in a minute. But Iraq has not really been in the news lately. You don't hear a lot about it. It doesn't seem to be boiling over with casualties or anything of that sort. And I'm just wondering, is that a good sign? Is, is, are things okay in Iraq now? Or what's your take on the current situation in Iraq? I think they're pretty far from okay. And I think there's a Part of the fact is that we're so preoccupied with our own problems that even China doesn't get that much attention in the news, and certainly Iraq doesn't, and it's not an easy country to cover. That's a dangerous place for reporters to go. And the Iranian-backed militias make sure that it remains dangerous. Our colleague Ken Pollack has been commenting recently on the pressure that Iran is putting on the 
Prime Minister of Iraq, Khadami, who's, I think, one of the best prime ministers we could hope for in these circumstances, just as they now have a president named Baram Salih, a Kurd, whom I've known for a very long an Iraqi Kurd I've known for a very long time, who I think is the most potential as the president in a job, which is largely ceremonial, but he's managing to make it more substantive. I think that Iraq is going to be very important. And if Iran succeeds, as Ken worries a little bit, although I think he says, at least for now, he thinks the Iraqis are too smart to fall for this. If Iran succeeds with the promise that somehow they will be nice to Iraq if they just kick out the Americans, if we had leaders who could succumb to that, we would have some real trouble. I've never forgotten, though, made a big impression on me. This would have been 1991, so I hate to think of how long ago. That was 30 years ago. I went to Saudi Arabia at the end of the first Gulf War with Secretary of State Baker, and the Shia rebellion in southern Iraq had just begun. There was some debate on our plane about whether, going over about whether the U.S. should give any support to the rebels. Unfortunately, what ended up as American policy was that we would do nothing for them. But when we got to Saudi Arabia, the first meeting that Baker had was with Saudi Foreign Minister Saud al-Faisal and the Saudi Ambassador to Washington, Andar bin Sultan, who was kind of a second Saudi Foreign Minister. And I remember because it was a position I had taken on the plane. The two of them said to Baker, the worst thing you could do now is to leave Saddam in power. That wasn't too surprising to me, but surprising me a little bit was, and we're not afraid of the Shia of Iraq because for one thing, they're Arabs and not Persians, which is exactly what I had said. And then they added, and for three, eight years in that awful war, they were loyal to Saddam fighting against Iran. So they're not going to become captives of Tehran. Well, I think that That would have been true then. I think to some extent it remains true today. But unfortunately, Iran has some very deep tentacles in the form of money and covert operations to threaten Iraqis. It's developed that's produced some pushback from civil society in southern Iraq. There have been anti-Iran demonstrations, actually, which I think is something, a sign of health. Although We don't hear much about that one either. But in the meantime, I think the Iraqi government, which was constitution created by the Americans with some defects in it, because I don't think we knew what we were doing. The Iraqi government is riddled with corruption, which is a source of deep populist dissatisfaction. And I think one of the things, in fact, I don't just think this, I know that one of the things that Baram Sali, that Iraqi Kurdish vice president, I mean, president, said to me was the thing we most need help with is going after corrupt money. And that is something actually that's been developed as a Mm -hmm. useful tool by the U.S. Treasury and U.S. Justice Department over the last 10 years or so, with one spectacular success that I'm familiar with in Malaysia. But it ought to be applied in other places that are critical, and certainly Iraq is critical from that point of view. It's the second most powerful country in the Gulf after Iran. It is a symbol, whether we like it or not, of American will and resolve. And it's one of the biggest oil producers and one of the biggest exporters of oil to China. Right there, you've got three reasons right, why right, we ought to exactly. care, especially if we can do something without talking about going back with 100,000 American troops, which nobody wants to do, and certainly not me. Well, speaking about American troops, let's do Afghanistan for just a second here. Not many troops that are there. They're sort of the keep the cohesion of, of other Western troops that are also there. Fred Kagan once told me that for a very relatively small expense, we 
accomplish a great deal by having a presence in Afghanistan. So President Biden's announcement yesterday must have disappointed you or concerned you. And how do you see this unfolding? I mean, how if, if he goes through with this and we withdraw entirely from Afghanistan, what do you think will happen? Can I start this with a seemingly irrelevant anecdote? Yes, of course. I'm going to do that anyway. So, of course, you have to say yes. I was, I've been, a, at least until COVID hit, was a fairly regular attendee and regular supporter of an event in Colorado called the Disabled Veterans Winter Sports Clinic. It's an amazing thing where disabled veterans come and blind veterans ski. It's amazing. They have never skied in their life. They're taught how to ski without eyesight. It's just an example. But at any rate, I, breakfast one day, I was sitting with three fathers of veterans who had been wounded in Iraq or Afghanistan. And they were all Vietnam veterans, it turned out. And I remember saying something about what heroes their sons were. They were all, their kids were all boys, guys, men. And then I realized, well, wait a minute. What am I saying about these two, these three men who themselves fought in Vietnam? And afterwards, I, not afterwards, at breakfast, I said, you know, one of the greatest leaders in Southeast Asia, Lee Kuan Yew, the Prime Minister, President of Singapore, my President, Prime Minister of Singapore, once said to me that without the American resistance in Vietnam, we would not have survived. It gave us time to get on our feet and gave us time for China and the Soviet Union split. And that's why we're still able to be a relatively free country today. He didn't say relatively, he said free. We have different standards of free. And right after that, one of the fathers came up to me with, as I remember it, with almost tears in his eyes, saying, thank you. That's the first time anyone has said thank you to us. And I bring that up because I know there's a certain movement among veterans of Afghanistan to say we've been there long enough, let's leave. And I just wonder, though, if we leave precipitously, and I know they're waiting till September now, which is better than May 1st, but it's still pretty precipitous and it's going to be pretty complete, I guess. That's the plan. And then the place collapses and all sorts of innocent people who stake their lives on American assistance and support are executed summarily by the Taliban. It's going to be a disgrace. And everyone who ever fought on that is going to feel that their sacrifice and the sacrifice of friends who were wounded or killed was all for nothing. And if Fred is right, and I think he is right, that a very small continued American presence would make a huge difference in the ability of the Afghan government and the Afghan security forces to keep the Taliban at bay. We're not talking about large American casualties, maybe not even significant ones at all, although any, any death is significant, but still nothing like what we've suffered over the course of 20 years. And I don't believe that we're talking about significant expenditure and certainly nothing compared to what we would be spending if al-Qaeda comes back to Afghanistan, as I'm sure they will do every, make every effort to do, and I'm sure the Taliban will encourage it. To look back at the sacrifices that have been made and say it was all for nothing, when I think today we can say it was not all for nothing, there's been some real progress both from the point of view of American security and from the point of view of a better life for the Afghan people and especially for the women and children. Yeah. It's a terrible thing to throw away. Instead, we ought to be talking about how to make the Pakistanis behave better, which is something that no prior president ever figured out, but there must be some ways to do that. They well, are the key supporter of the Taliban. Well, that, that raises, I'm going to ask one last question on the Middle East before turning to China, and that is, why is it that the Afghan security forces and the Afghan government can't win against the Taliban? Why can't they win for themselves? 
part of it is if you look at a map of Afghanistan and look at the incredible terrain, it goes from incredible deserts, but most of all these towering peaks, I think, I don't know how many are higher than the Rocky Mountains, but it must be a large number. There's always places to hide. It's a lot like our friend down the street, Michael Lannon, the bookings, wrote a piece with me about the analogies to Colombia, where you can never defeat the gorillas in Colombia because the jungle provides a natural sanctuary, but you can at least drive them into the jungles. And I think trying to achieve too much from a military point of view in Afghanistan may have been a mistake. But at any rate, we are where we are now. There's no question, I think, that the Afghan security forces can provide a much better safety for their own population with some essential American support because they need it for things like helicopters and communications. I think this insurgency will last as long as Pakistan continues to support it. There's no way you can suppress it just militarily. But it's also almost a commonplace counterinsurgency that no insurgency has ever been defeated when it had a sanctuary. So the Taliban both have this internal sanctuary in the mountains, but even more importantly, they have a sanctuary of supply and money and resources from Pakistan. That ought to end somehow. And I fear that China plays a role in that one, too, because China is very close to Pakistan in many ways. They're building up a port as part of their so-called Belt and Road Initiative, which is all, I'm sure, just about economic development and energy security, but it might come in handy if the Chinese fleet starts wanting to do something in the Persian Gulf. So they've been very cozy with Pakistan. In fact, I think that's one of the, my, I guess, offbeat theory is that one reason why China attacked India a few months ago was not so much that they expected that they cared about the territory in question or that they expected to bring down the Indian government or make themselves popular in India, they're not that foolish. But rather, it was a signal to Pakistan that if Pakistan stood up to India and continued to support the Taliban, they would literally have China at their backs. They did something very similar in 1979 when they attacked Vietnam and taught, quote, taught them a lesson. It was a very restrained lesson because they had their eyes on what the Soviets might do if they went too far. But it's part of what Lee Kuan Yew was talking about in saying that One reason that the dominoes didn't collapse, I'm putting words in his mouth, but that's what he was saying, is because by the time Vietnam was ready to go further and into Thailand, China was already on the other side, thanks in part to the opening that Nixon made to China. So the answer to my question is, is that the Afghan security forces, no, 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 but the Afghan security forces can't win in in a battle with the Taliban because the Taliban has the advantage of the Pakistani and, and Chinese backing. And so we're there to balance that, that backing. If it was a fair fight with neither intervention from any outside country, your judgment is the Taliban security forces could prevail. Certainly if the Pakistani involvement ended. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if they were sufficiently afraid of India, it would end. Yeah. But the Chinese are kind of reassuring them, don't worry, we'll take care of India if they make trouble for you. Right. The Americans used to do that, by the way. You know, when there was a nearly open war between India and Pakistan back in the months and couple of years after 9-11, the United States leaned pretty hard on India not to escalate. For good reason. We don't want to see a war between two nuclear-armed countries. Right. But the Pakistanis are the beneficiaries of that. I see. 
Okay, so now let's turn to, to China and Hong Kong and Taiwan and, and, and China's growing presence in the world and threatening presence in the world. Just as a historical analogy, is there a fair analogy here to China, to other adventurous countries trying to subvert self-determination in neighbors? And should we think of ourselves in a kind of, I really could be completely wrong, and if I am, Paul, tell me, a 1939 time? At the risk of alarmism, I think the short answer is yes. I'll try to give not too much longer an answer, but I think we're dealing with a tyrannical regime that aspires to some considerable degree of global hegemony, like Nazi Germany, in a way like Japan, on a, but only on a regional level. I don't think Japan's ambitions went that far. And the Soviet Union under Stalin. And by the way, there's an interesting book that I gather is coming out on the 20th that apparently explains how Stalin subverted American policy through the agency of a communist named Harry Dexter White, who was acting on their direct orders, helped to sabotage what might have been peace negotiations between the U.S. and Japan in the month before Pearl Harbor. It's a pretty dramatic revelation. I want to follow up on that. Harry Dexter White, I vaguely remember that name. Was he a journalist or a diplomat? He was a, he was a very senior Treasury Department official who had great influence on Henry Morgenthau, who was the ah, secretary. Yeah, yeah. And through him, heavy influence on Cordell Hall. And according to an article in the Wall Street Journal, I think it was a few days ago, by the author of this book, a guy had barred college named Edward McMeekin, whom I hadn't known of before. But he seems to be a pretty serious scholar. A barred college professor uh, exposing Soviet espionage. I love that. Glad to hear that. Barred. It's <laughs> got some people that are out there on that. No, it's actually, it's amazing, in fact, to think about American academia. Or think about the, as I put it in an email to a friend, the stain that Joe McCarthy put on anti-communism through his extremism, that even to this day, it took what, we're talking from 1941 to, we're talking about 50 years, right, since Pearl Harbor. It took 50 years for somebody to be able to write openly about traitors in the U.S. government selling us out to the Soviet Union and bringing Japan into a war with the United States instead of a war with, with the Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So now we, we strayed there a little bit, but you, you accepted... You, accepted... you can edit that out if you want. <laughs> no, no, but you, that's okay. I, I like that. That's what we like about this. You're but tour of the world. But you accepted the analogy, and that's troubling. I mean, what, what should we do about it? What should we do about this? And what, what is Biden not doing or doing? Or do you see any hope here? Let me make it more troubling. I think in terms of the ambitions that we're confronting, it's unlike anything we've seen before in three or four respects. Respect number one is that neither the Soviet Union nor Nazi Germany ever had their hooks into the American society and American business and American capitalism the way that Xi Jinping's China does today. And Let's, uh, that's, emphasize that to our listeners. That is a huge difference. The Soviet Union's relationship with the United States, market, consumers, people, was tiny compared to the Chinese relationship with us today. And it's partly because we kept them out. That's what Jackson Vanek was actually aimed at, although the, the, the ostensible issue was Jewish emigration from the Soviet Union. But I, th I know from working with Senator Jackson back in the 70s that at least as important for him was stopping the flood of credits to the Soviet Union with the Nixon administration, 
wanted to begin dispensing as part of detente. So it's true that the Soviet Union had much less to offer, but that's partly because we kept denying them the technology that would have made them more successful. And I saw examples of that when I visited the former Soviet Union right after the fall of Gorbachev. And some of the things they, I remember seeing, a, they were going to make their own version of a, a food processor by converting military technology because all their, half their industry by then was militarily, military, which is part of why they couldn't reform it. They were going to convert it to domestic production. And this food processor was something that even a restaurant couldn't handle. It was massive, took up two whole rooms. Uh, it was a joke. It was really laughable. But I don't think they were laughing when they presented it to us. I think they thought they were doing something useful. So, but so China's involvement. Never had it with. We didn't have with China. We have the problem that when they don't like, and I'm writing about this with my research assistant, who's terrific on China, named Bill Drexel. He's lived in. He actually traveled to Xinjiang when he lived in China for a year or two. It's remarkable, by the way, how younger people get around in a way that. I don't think my generation did very well unless we went to smoke pot someplace. So, <laughs> <laughs> you didn't hear me say that, there's, right? There's, well, we're going to pull out uh, of the episode right there. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's good. So anyway, I've gotten interested and gotten him interested in a guy who has his own blog about China. It's a video blog, actually. So I guess he's called a blogger, not a blogger. And his name is Matt Ty. I think we're going to do an AI ideas post about him, about this aspect. He's a tiny little prick in the side of the PRC, and yet they have gone after his advertisers. I don't know what a YouTube advertisement costs anybody or what it really produces, but they've scared some fairly big companies into non-advertising on Matt's YouTube. So let's stop there for a second, because that's that's the, the sort of commercial ruthlessness of the Chinese on American companies. Would you be very adamant with American companies or American commercial enterprises like the NBA, for instance? Should the NBA refuse to do business in China? Should it forsake whatever commercial benefit they get from Chinese consumption of their products because just out of principle? Look, we're talking about what Lenin said when and we're going to, I found the real quote, which is less colorful when he said, don't worry about the rope shortage, comrade. The capitalists will sell us the rope that we need to hang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he actually had a more sophisticated comment, according to Oxford Dictionary Quotations. And when we have this blog post up, you can read it there. But look, they are using capitalist greed, to put it in two colorful terms, but the desire and the need to make money to get people to do things that may be against the larger interest and to simply try to say, as a matter of principle, you should forget about your shareholders. You should forget about your bottom line. You should forget about paying your employees because what you're doing is immoral. And I, I do believe, for example, that when Volkswagen of all companies builds an automobile factory in Xinjiang, and the CEO of Volkswagen doesn't even, which after all was Hitler's car, if you remember. He, mm -hmm. yeah, 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 I got that. You're not old enough to remember. Yeah, I'm not yeah, even old yeah, enough. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I remember. I didn't, say, I didn't say I remembered it. I said I read it. But, but I, but I want to know. Okay, so that was a bad thing. They should not have done that. And well, he claimed he didn't even know they had a plant there. Well, that you might start by get, correcting the ignorance. But I think that it. We're talking. I guess what I'm trying to get to is it's a very difficult thing, very difficult ground to walk on. And I do think that if 
We want people who have a necessity to care about profits and not say we're going to just dismantle the capitalist system because it's bad. I know there are some people around who'd be happy to do that, but I think that's not what AI believes, and I think for good reason. But if we want the larger benefits that come from capitalism, I think everyone would say it needs to be regulated in some ways. And I also think if you're going to impose a costly regulation on companies in the interests of the national interest and national security, which is what we're talking about now, then there ought to be at least some mechanism devised to help make up for that. And I'm not sure what that mechanism is. I do think that if you could build a coalition of all NBA and say, none of us are going to go to China as long as those concentration camps exist. Yeah. And you don't have to argue about the word genocide, although it is cultural genocide, but let's just say, there's no argument about the concentration camps. We built our own for the wrong reasons 50 years ago. It's not a fair analogy. It's not even close. It's not even close. I agree with that. Yeah. I'm just saying, constant, we, it's not even close, and we have, we have addressed it. begged forgiveness for it and yes. addressed it and put it behind us. That's all we're asking from the goddamn Chinese communists. We're not asking them to sanction terrorism. We're not asking them to make Xinjiang independent, although it has every claim to be independent. We ought to remind, in fact, the world that China conquered Xinjiang in ways as brutal as anything we ever did in our expansion westward. I'm sorry, I don't want to keep coming back to our mistakes, but the difference between us and this regime is we did those in the 19th century when a lot of things that shouldn't have been acceptable were acceptable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I completely agree. They're not... But let me ask about Hong Kong. And I can tell Phoebe wants to... I was going to ask about Hong Kong. (laughs) Can I... One last sentence on the NBA. Yeah. If they all did the same thing, the Chinese government would have to explain to its people why they weren't able to watch NBA games. That would be a huge defeat for it. Oh, I agree. I think the... So the leverage is on our side. We have leverage here. The Chinese people like the things that we sell them, and they like the NBA, and they like... And if we had a little guts, the Chinese would respond. I believe that. I think that... But we haven't. That's why I think Michael Massey's idea of moving the Olympics to Romney's idea to put it at a higher level politically. (laughs) Well, they came up with it together. Phoebe asked Hong Kong. about Hong yeah. Kong. But, so to take a yeah more specific example here with Hong Kong. So the Trump administration drew a lot of criticism, including from our own China scholars, for not responding more forcefully to the crackdown in Hong Kong. What do you think should have been done at the time? And is there anything that Biden could do now? Well, I said it at the time. I said in the Wall Street Journal, I think in January of last year, and the title of the article was Hong Kong Sanctions with Peace. And... It gets back to this anti-kleptocracy business. According to a Chinese publication, which I'm not sure can be considered reliable because it was published in Shanghai, but it does sort of make you think that maybe, if anything, they're underestimating it. The combined net worth of the 4,000 members of the National People's Congress is over half a trillion dollars. That is a fact that by itself, if publicized and confirmed through other more reliable sources, would be a huge embarrassment to that party. It's not something that the 4,000 members want revealed on international media. And they would certainly hold it against Xi Jinping for putting them in that position. And they would like it even less if we trace any small percentage of that $500 billion to the places where it's hidden in the West. And as a former senior banker who became a minister of finance in a developing country said to me once, if you can get after the high-level corruption, 
it will filter down to the lower level corruption because the fish stinks from the head. And I said, well, can't they just go to the Cayman Islands or someplace like that? And he, his response was, no, they want honest bankers. So there's a lot of money that is probably hidden in London real estate or hidden in Swiss banks, which are no longer quite as secure for fees as they used to be, but they're still better than... than so what would have been the harm to us? What would have been, if we had put financial sanctions on Chinese nationals as a result of the Hong Kong crackdown, what would have been so hard about that? That's Why didn't we do national, that? Let me change nationals to individuals, because I'm really talking about focusing on individuals, not on... Or individuals, right. Population. Yes, yes. And I think the answer is probably... Certainly, for one thing, it would probably depress real estate prices in New York and London. And that creates one lobby that doesn't like it. My sense in general is that Treasury doesn't like doing these things, I guess, because they would say it, it weakens confidence in the American financial system. Yeah. And I don't mean to dismiss that arbitrarily, but I've been struck at how many entities have been sanctioned under one bill or another. And this Global Magnitsky Act gives you very broad authority to sanction individuals, and how little actual action has been taken to confiscate assets. And even in the dramatic case of the 1MDB Malaysian Fund, which the last administration, to its credit, did go after with an anti-kleptocracy action and a complaint that elaborated that For some reason, in legal terms, it's called a complaint that froze, I think, $1.5 billion of assets in the U.S. and the Singaporeans, and I think one other country did some as well. In coordination. So the failure to. Very little of that money has actually been expropriated. Yeah. It should be seized and given to somebody responsible. Right. Especially now that Malaysia has a responsible government. So I think that's why I use the phrase with teeth. And part of the teeth are the exposure, and part of the teeth is the actual sanctioning and seizure. And since the sanctioning and seizure requires a great deal of evidence to support it, I'm sure, and a lot of investigation of money laundering. What I said in that article was, before you get to the complexity of actually enforcing the sanctions, at least begin collecting the intelligence that would allow you to, to do that. And just the threat of a major American investigation into the wealth of senior Chinese, including the general secretary, he's not called generally the president, the emperor, as he should be called. I well, think just that threat alone would yeah. get their attention. Okay, so in the 40s, I think, there was a phrase, who lost China? So let's take a phrase now and say, who lost Hong Kong? And, and you're saying there were devices the Trump administration could have exercised when this was happening that might have had an impact and preserved some semblance of freedom in Hong Kong. So do we say that the Trump administration lost Hong Kong and that Secretary Pompeo deserves some being held account for that? I'm no great defender of the Trump administration, but I think they did better on this than most American politicians. I think collectively we were too silent, too indifferent, too much saying, well, there's nothing we can do about it anyway. And it doesn't really matter to us. And one of the things that I think needs more attention is the Chinese violations of human rights of their own, I don't want to call them their own people because they're not their people, they're subjects. PRC violations of the rights of their subjects has real consequences for Americans. It's not a purely moral or humanitarian issue. When they put a journalist in jail for four years because she reported honestly about what was going on in Wuhan, it's not the journalist that suffer. It's anyone else who might be tempted to tell the truth. And if you think that knowing the truth about the epidemic doesn't matter to Americans, then you 
you've been living on a different planet. Mm -hmm. And when they basically tear up a solemn agreement they made with the British about Hong Kong, and have basically chosen to ignore it because it's all about who has the strength to do what they want to do. Right. As the Chinese foreign minister, I believe, said to a group in Singapore, someone objected about South China Sea, and he said, you need to understand that you're small countries and we're a big one. I mean, if that's how they want to play games, then we should be very careful about entering into other agreements with them. And that should be made very clear. So Hong Kong matters to us, not just to the people of Hong Kong. And I'd say also, finally, the fact that they can get away with murder in Hong Kong, which is literally what they're doing by locking people up for life, of threatening to do that if they do that. They're on the roads doing that. And creating a visa wall around the city that is not as visible as Chris's Berlin Wall, but it's equally effective. In fact, it's more effective because it discriminates and allows people out that they want to let out, but not ones they don't. Then I think it begins to encourage adventurism elsewhere. And the one that worries me the most is Taiwan. Right. And if they think that they can get away with the use of force in Taiwan, we will be confronted with a terrible dilemma of either a war with China or a conquest of a free, freely governing example that Chinese people are capable of something other than the brutality that marks so much of their historic past. Okay, so your view was that we're all to blame, and of course the Chinese are, are most to blame, the Chinese leadership, the PRC. Let's not blame ourselves for their aggressions. But now let's talk about the Biden administration. Do you see any sign of a strengthening and a greater willingness to counter China in Hong Kong or Taiwan or any of these issues? Or are you worried it's going to get even less strong? I think it's a mixed picture. I was worried a little bit about the very little that, and it was very little that Biden had to say during the campaign about Hong Kong. And the one thing I remember him saying was that if they started going after Americans, it would be serious. That sounded to me like Obama saying, if they start using chemical weapons in Syria, it will be serious, which was more a way of saying, since I don't think they're going to use chemical weapons, we don't have to get serious. But I think since coming to office, they've generally, I would say it's in many ways better than I had hoped for, but still not as strong as I would like to see. And in the plus category, I would say that Blinken's willingness to talk about genocide, and I even would agree with people who say that may be a bridge a little bit too far, but it's pretty hard to, to talk about Xinjiang without getting to that word. Anyway, I yeah. think he did well there. What they've had to say, particularly about Taiwan, is pretty good. And sending this high-level delegation of formers, including Biden's former colleague from the Senate, Chris Dodd, who voted for the Taiwan Relations Act, and two former Deputy Secretaries of State, i.e. two former predecessors of Blinken, to Taiwan is something that... It's a good sign. ...get the Chinese attention. It is a good sign. Yeah. And the thing that you have to think about is, have they really thought through what they're going to do if the Chinese claim that that's a provocation, they're going to do something much worse than they've been doing? And I, we, we don't know what they're doing without... I mean, I'd be concerned if, I, if we all knew what the Pentagon was thinking or what... Because that's what we're talking about now. Right. But it's very important, and I wrote this last fall, it's very important to remember that Stalin would not have given the go-ahead for Kim Il-sung to invade South Korea if he hadn't seen signs that the U.S. would do nothing to, to prevent it. And I think that I know it's a risky business. I think I said earlier that no one wants to see a war between the U.S. and China, and I certainly don't. 
But the question is, are you more likely to have one if they think that you won't do anything, or are you more likely to have one if they believe that there would be a response? And I'm in the latter category. And I think in that respect, Taiwan is not unlike Berlin in the Cold War, when we had a position that was even less defensible from a military point of view. Right. And that had all kinds of political ambiguities built into it. But where through basically sheer force of will, John Kennedy prevailed over Khrushchev. And the rest, as they say, is history. And the Cold War ended peacefully. Also, don't they need to know that when you say well, that we're not going to do something, but it's also that they need to know that the, a price will be paid, that these things that they try to do that are cross the line are going to be painful for them because we're going to make it hard for them. Isn't that helpful? Because they don't really want to pay prices. They want to get things for free. And that's, I think it's essential. That's why I think that in the top of my list of things that they've done wrong, and they may have thought this was only a global health issue and not a China issue, but going back to the WHO unconditionally, as, yeah. as they did, was unnecessary and was a mistake, in my view. It rewards the WHO for its corrupt subordination to the PRC. It avoids making Xi Jinping pay any price for infecting the whole world and killing, what is it now, two million people, I think is the count by now. Almost makes Mao look like... Well, it's, he still hasn't reached Maoist proportions, but he's heading there. And I think that the, we, the more our rhetoric talks about Xi Jinping is taking China back to a period that we thought we had gotten past, which is the tyranny and the international misbehavior of Mao Zedong and the deaths of Chinese, I think the more we might be able to penetrate the Chinese elites. So, Paul, we've covered a lot of ground. We covered Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq a lot on China. Is there something that you'd want to make sure that you conveyed based on your sort of view of the world we haven't asked about? Two things. First, just to underscore my very strong agreement with you that making them pay a price, I would say particularly for COVID, because that's something that Americans can understand. But doing it in a way that distinguishes Chinese people from the communist government. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And where Justice Bush, I think, did a pretty good job and very consciously tried to emphasize that Muslim Americans were our allies, not our enemies. We should do a better job than I think either president has done so far in saying that Chinese Americans have contributed enormously and will continue to do so. And let's not stigmatize them for the actions of a government that hurts the Chinese people. And then I guess I would also say part of what makes this problem so unique, not I guess I am so unique, is not just this interconnection between our societies and economies, but also the fact that so many of the issues are highly technical, like 5G, like pandemic viruses, like information security. I think knowing that a war would be terrible for them as well as us, I think the Chinese expansionists are trying to think of ways through cyber theft and cyber intrusion, and who knows, maybe even control over vaccines, for example, that they can expand their influence in the world to the detriment of, of the three countries, including the United States. And then I can't stop without observing that the people who say that it's critical that we get our own house in order, and it certainly hasn't looked very orderly for a while now, and it's incredibly challenging given how deep the partisan divides appear to be and over issues that you would have thought would be clear-cut. But I think actually the divide over China is pretty minimal. and. It's possible for this administration to say, we like a lot of what Trump did, but here's how we're going to do it different, but not exactly the same. 
I do think that we're much, much stronger when we come together. And I hope it doesn't take a Pearl Harbor-like event to bring us together. And dictators should remember that that did happen. And that 9-11 did unite Americans against the Taliban. And that Saddam's invasion of Kuwait did unite Americans against Iraq, at least for that event. So they should take care. Paul, on that divided issue and, and the divisions in our country that make it harder for us to act in a strong way around the world, it's in the Chinese government's interest that we are divided so that we can't do what we want to do in an effective way. And my question to you is, how significant do you think is their efforts to influence and undermine public opinion in the United States? Is it a small thing or is it a really big thing that's contributing to our polarization? I don't think that by any means it's a major factor. Okay. That's... And I think even the kind of cyber manipulation that they engage in and the Russians engaged in is really what drives things nearly as much as, I don't need to pick on her, but Hillary's comment about a basket of deplorables and irredeemables had far greater impact than anything that these countries could do through yeah, yeah. cyber attacks and manipulation. And if they think they're winning this game, they should just take a public opinion poll in the United States. They are overplaying their hand, and they are their own worst enemies when they think that being rude and aggressive in a meeting in Alaska is the way of showing strength. But similarly, and again, not to pick on him either, difficult comments by President Trump are far more damaging than anything the Chinese are doing in the same way. And they continue. And yeah, so it, that's a fair comment. This is something we can, that they're not driving the polarization. We have some polarization going on all by ourselves. Absolutely. Challenging <laughs> the results of an election is polarizing as you can get. Okay, I've, I've enjoyed this. Phoebe, yep. did you have anything to add or yeah, ask? I think we covered a lot of ground. Paul, thank you very much. It's an honor to have you as part of AI and to be able to talk to you as we do all, this, all these days. And thanks for participating. Thanks. Well, I've engaged in verbal diarrhea for a bit. So one last thing. Yes, yes. We say China. I think it would be good to think of three Chinas. One is the Chinese people with a great civilization and a long history and a lot to be proud of and a lot to be angry about in the way they were treated in the 19th century. No question. Although they don't seem to pay much attention to how they mistreated themselves in the 20th. But that's one category. A second one is the Chinese Communist Party, which I'm afraid is going to be with us for quite a long time and hopefully is still capable of some kind of reform. And the third thing we mean when we're talking China is Emperor Xi Jinping, who is taking China back to an era that I thought we had passed. Even George Shultz was pretty mild-mannered in the last thing he wrote, I think, before he died. He talks about how, I think he used the word China, but he meant Xi Jinping, is wrecking Hong Kong. And that the constructive relationship we look forward to in the 1980s has, seems to have gone the way of other things. I don't think that was inevitable. I think it was strengthened by the fact that they used to behave better because they were afraid of the Soviet Union. That's gone away. They used to behave better because they weren't terrified of their own people, as they became after Tiananmen. But still, if we talk about our dependence on China being a problem, they're hardly independent of us and the rest of the world. And I think that's their weakness as well. And I think their economy, as some of our colleagues have begun to write prophetically about, is running into demographic and economic challenges. So I'll leave it there. It's, okay. it's not, I don't want to leave too great an impression that time is on their side. I don't believe it is. Thank you very much. Great conversation. 
Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.